Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. That's where we're going to be uh, for the next several months. We're really, I'm really, really excited to begin this series with you. Um, and there's a way in which it kind of fits in with uh, what we started this summer. So we're, we're doing a, a next three years um, plan, um, but don't, don't hold me to it exactly. This is one of those, like, Lord willing, this is what we intend to do things. But um, this summer we started with um, beginning with Moses. You remember that series? We were seeing how the Pentateuch points to Jesus. And we're going to continue that series in the summers. That will be, all told, it will be a four-summer series where we had beginning with Moses and then we'll do and the prophets uh, for the next two summers, starting with the former prophets, also known as the historical books. So like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, the Kings, Chronicles uh, will be in those this coming summer, Lord willing, and then the next summer after that. So this summer is going to be 19 in summer of 20. Uh, Lord willing, it'll be the latter prophets. Those are the ones that you probably think of as the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. So we'll be seeing how those books point to Jesus. And then the fourth summer, 2021, Lord willing, will be, and the Psalms, which won't just be Psalms when Jesus uh, said that uh, in Luke 24 as he was talking with his disciples. Uh, he meant it to be uh, what, what's come down to us as, as the writings or the wisdom book. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, ones in that genre. So over the four summers, we'll have gone through, on an overview level, all of the Old Testament to see how in all the scriptures, um, Jesus is there. And for us to see him in his glory, in his beauty, and to believe. And so... In the middle, in the school years, uh, what we're going to be doing is going through Luke and then Acts. So that in just over three years, we will have gone through the entire narrative of the Bible. So we'll have left out um, you know, the epistles, the letters in the New Testament. We'll be looking to those a lot for application as we go through these series. And then we'll jump back into one of those eventually. But we'll have gone through the entire storyline, the history that happened uh, in the time of the Bible, in that three-year period. Because Luke, as one of the Gospels, tells us about what Jesus, the way Luke put it at the beginning of Acts, what Jesus began to do and teach, the events of his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And then Acts kind of continues where Luke left off. It starts over at the ascension and then goes to continue how Jesus is at work through the Holy Spirit in the life of his first disciples, the apostles, and how the good news of Jesus spread to all nations, even in the first century. It was going throughout the world without hindrance, despite much opposition. So the plan is to do Luke 1 to 9.50 in the rest of this school year, and then next school year, 9.51 through the end of 24, and then Acts in the next one after that. So if you're in you know, seventh grade now, you'll be finishing ninth grade and getting ready to go into 10th grade when we finish that. And if you're a college student, you'll just have to stick around for that. Without any further ado then, uh, let me read the scripture for this morning because Luke gave us a nice little beginning, a prologue, or you might see it in your Bible as a dedication to Theophilus. And that will be our text for this morning. So Luke chapter 1, I'll read verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us your word. You have spoken to us by your word. 
We could learn much about your beauty and your glory and your power by observing your creation. But we could never know your love, your care, your compassion, your saving work, apart from you revealing it to us in your word. So we ask you to help us to revere your word, to trust your word. We thank you for how you have revealed Jesus, because you spoke to us in a, in a lot of ways in the old days, and now you have spoken to us by your Son. And so we look forward to these months, these years of looking at Jesus, seeing who he is. Would you help us to respond with faith? Would you help us to respond with repentance? Would you help us to respond with obedience and joy? Oh, would you work those good things in us for your glory, for our joy, and the joy of our neighbors and co-workers, and not just around here, but the joy of the nations. So this is way beyond us, way beyond any of us individually, way beyond us as one church. God, would you do this? And would you use your word by the power of your spirit to make us into the people you want us to be while we wait for Jesus to return? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So Luke gave us this dedication, this prologue, and it sounds kind of formal, right? I mean, when's the last time you started writing something with the word in as much, right? Um, And it is meant to be formal. So these four verses are the formal introduction. They're setting us up for what is going to come in the gospel according to Luke. And so this sermon in many ways will be an introductory sermon, um, letting us know where we'll be going for the rest of this school year and the next one as we look into this gospel together. So the big idea this morning is this. Luke wrote this gospel. This is longer than usual, just warning you, especially the kids who are trying to write it down. So we'll give you time. Keep writing. It's right there on the screen. Luke wrote this gospel so that we would have certainty about what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Luke wrote this gospel so that we would have certainty about what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. That's why he wrote it, so that we would have certainty, so that we would know who Jesus is, and that we would know what he accomplished. But we need to back up and say, okay, Luke? Luke wrote this? How do we know? Well, it says right in my Bible, the gospel according to Luke, right? Uh, But it doesn't say anywhere in it, right? When Paul writes a letter, very often his name is right there on it. Uh, His his name is often the, the very first word of the letter. So he's letting people know this is who I am and this is my relationship to you and I'm writing to you. There is a name in these first few verses, but it's not the name of the author. It's the name of the recipient. So let's first look at the author, at the author Luke. Uh, We do believe that Luke wrote this gospel. This is attested from very early on. Um, Most likely he wrote this in the 60s of the first century. So not the 1960s, even now when you hear the 60s, it's like we think of particular things. Not those 60s, um, another 60s, um, probably in like the 62 to 65 range. Um, he, He would have written it and He didn't have his name in it, but his name probably would have been attached from the beginning and from very early um, in in the 100s, around 150 is the first writing that we have that's come down to us, first extra biblical writing that's come down to us that identified this gospel with Luke. Um, And one of the strong evidences that we believe it was actually Luke is if you were making it up, you wouldn't pick Luke to be the author. Because Luke is not an apostle. Um, there were letters that were going around um, that didn't become part of the New Testament. There were gospels that were floating around later that didn't become part of the New Testament. And usually those books, almost exclusively, those books, those letters 
would claim to be connected to some apostle and to be written by an apostle. And Luke is not an apostle. He's not one that you'd pick. He wasn't one of the people who was with Jesus for all those years and would have seen it and been able to write it down. He's coming at it from a different place, from a different perspective. So we believe in in accordance with the testimony that's come down to us from the early church that this was written by Luke. And who was who is Luke then? If he's not one of the apostles, who is he? Well, Luke we know is a companion of Paul. Luke was a companion of Paul. He's called, in Colossians 4.4, he's called the beloved physician by Paul. Paul's writing Colossians and he's finishing up and he's, he's sending greetings, as he would often do, from his co-workers, from the other people who were ministering with him. And he speaks of Luke, the beloved physician. Luke is also mentioned at the end of 2 Timothy and at the end of Philemon. So Luke is someone who spent at least some time with Paul. And we also believe um, that he traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys. Uh, in the book of Acts, there are what are, what are known as the, the we sections of Acts. So lots of Acts is told in, in the third person. This is what this person said. This is what this person did. This is where this person went. And then there are times where it says, and we went on to wherever. There are a few different places where that happens. So Luke is not always with Paul, uh, but there are some times when he's with him, at least when three of his letters were written, and at least in a few places in Acts where Luke suddenly switches from third person, this is what they did, to first person plural. This is what we did, speaking of where Paul went. So Luke is the author. He's a companion of Paul. He also wrote Acts. Um, Luke, by volume, actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other single author. We're probably used to the idea of Paul wrote so many letters, and he wrote most of the New Testament, and if you count it up by books, Paul wrote the most books of any author. But Luke, by volume, the size of his books, though he wrote just two, Luke, this gospel that we'll be in uh, for the first part of this series, um, Luke is the longest single book in the New Testament, um, by, again, by volume, not even by chapters. There's 28 chapters in Matthew and Acts and only 24 in Luke. But Luke, as you'll see as we get into them, has some very long uh, chapters. And so he has the most material. And then Acts is the second longest. So he has the, actually the two longest books, which all together make up quite a bit more than what Paul wrote And he meant for Luke and Acts to be related to each other. It's not that they're the same book and they got split up, uh, but we could think of it as as a sequel. And he really sets it up that way. So in the beginning of Luke, he's telling us, "I, I undertook to compile a narrative of the things that were accomplished among us. And in Acts, he says, in the first book that I wrote to you, O Theophilus, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. So the implication is he's continuing that story. Jesus did work. He accomplished God's purpose in the power of the Holy Spirit while he was on the earth. And now that he has ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, he continues his work through his people, through those first disciples, through the apostles, ultimately through us. So Luke and Acts are related. It's one of the reasons that we want to follow up Luke with Acts and continue to see uh, the gospel and then the early church from Luke's perspective because I think we have a lot to learn from him. So Luke is the author. He's a companion of Paul. He also wrote Acts. So he wrote most of the New Testament, certainly more than anyone, any other single author. And he wrote both of them to the same person, to Theophilus. So having looked at the author, let's look at the recipient, Theophilus. We don't know very much about him because he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Um, There's no extra biblical uh, literature from the early time that's like, yeah, this is who Theophilus was. Uh, But we can 
figure a little bit from the content of Luke and Acts and even from his name. His name means lover of God or loved by God. And we don't actually have to necessarily make a choice. It can mean either. It can mean both. Right? And we know that for ourselves as we are lovers of God. We're only lovers of God because we have been loved by God. So it's not that you're a lover of God and he's like, yeah, I don't know. Um, and it's not that God loves you and we're like, yeah, okay. Um, he is a lover of God and he's one who is loved by him. Uh, you might recognize, uh, especially for the kids, so you see in there Theophilus, right? So it sounds a little bit like the beginning of the name of our city, Philadelphia, where the city of brotherly love, right? The brotherly love part comes from that Phila, Delphi's the city, so that's where we get Philadelphia. So Theophilus, the Phyllis is love, and the Theo is from the Greek word for God. Theos is God. So Theophilus is someone who loves God or is loved by God. Now we can presume that he was probably a nobleman, of some rank, we don't know exactly what, but he's referenced here in the beginning in verse 3 as most excellent Theophilus. Uh, that's that's a, an expression that's also used in Acts, speaking of local rulers. Um, so perhaps he's a local ruler. Others have said perhaps he's the one who's supporting Luke while he's writing this. And so he's dedicating, Luke is dedicating his work to his patron, to the person who's helping him to be able to write it. But he's probably a nobleman of some rank. Theophilus also could be a pseudonym. Kids, you can write that down as the word you don't know, unless you know it. Somebody know it? One of the kids? Pseudonym? Okay. Um, Theophilus could be a name to conceal his secret superhero identity. (laughs) All right? So a pseudonym is a name that's not your real name, but it's used maybe to protect you or used just because you don't want people to know. Um, So like Mark Twain, you've read books by him, right? But was that his name? No, that was his pseudonym. What was his name? Samuel something? It's close. One of the kids? Samuel Clemens. There you go. So that will not be on the test. So Mark Twain was a pseudonym. And so it's possible that Luke is using the word, the name Theophilus, as a pseudonym too. We don't know this for sure, but it could be a name um, to, to help conceal an identity or to keep it general. But either way, there's a way in which Theophilus represents us. Theophilus was probably a non-Jew. He's probably a non-Jewish nobleman. Uh, Most of us are non-Jewish by birth. Um, Most of us are not noblemen, and that's probably none of us are noblemen. If you are, please let me know afterwards. But probably not. But we have things in common with him. We are not a Jew. We are not originally part of God's people, and he's most likely someone who's come to believe in Jesus rather recently. Uh, That would have been true for a lot of people in this time, but this is about 30 years after Jesus would have died and rose from the dead. And so he's probably a, a newer believer, someone who maybe wonders, how do I fit in this community that's made up mostly of Jews, but seems like it's maybe not just for Jews? And Luke highlights a lot how this good news is not only for those who were born Jews, but for everyone who comes to God by faith, both Jew and Gentile. That'll be an important focus of his work, how it's not about ethnic Israel anymore. It's about a new people of God from both Israel and non-Israelites who trust in Jesus. So he can represent us because hopefully that's what we all are, lovers of God, Because we are loved by God. And he wrote this gospel to assure Theophilus about the truths that he had been taught. And we often need that assurance as well. So Luke's purpose for Theophilus, whoever he was, is also relevant for us even down to this day. So let's look at his purpose. What is Luke's purpose? 
So he wrote to Theophilus. This is someone who was with Paul, one of his companions, one of his co-workers in ministry. And he says, I'm writing, in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The purpose is certainty. Luke and God, who inspired this gospel by the Holy Spirit, wants us to be certain. Now that's something that we're kind of not supposed to say in today's world. That we're certain about something. Because this gospel teaches that Jesus is the only Savior. He's the Savior for the whole world, but only for those who trust in Him. So this gospel is a call for us. It's, it's to help us have certainty in a world that is set on uncertainty. Right? Aren't we regularly told in no uncertain terms that certainty is bad? That certainty is wrong? There are even books about it. One by Peter Enns is called The Sin of Certainty. He believes that he has grown beyond certainty about what we believe and into a deeper trust in the real Jesus. And my question for him would be, how do you know who the real Jesus is? Because if we take just the Jesus we like, the Jesus that agrees with our political, social opinions, are we submitting to a Lord, a king who gets to tell us who he is? Or are we creating a God that we like? A God of our own making? There's another book by James T. Houck, uh, who's an atheist, called The Illusion of Certainty. Saying you can't really be certain about anything, but he's very certain that all religions are dangerous and damaging. And again, the question would be, how can you be so certain? Where does it come from? We all have a foundation somewhere. Many people today are trying to cover it over and hide it so you can't see what it is. And we pretend that our foundation is just pure rational thought and scientific investigation. But that's not really the foundation. The foundation is something else. And so we are called to freely admit the source of our certainty. That it's not in us. It's not because we figured it all out. It's not because we have it all together. It's not because we are the only good people who do it right. So even though the culture would tell us it's wrong to even say that you're certain about anything, or you're certain about that if nothing else, Luke wants us to be certain about what we believe. Again, not confident in ourselves, but confident in this book as it's been delivered to us, that this really is God's Word, and this really contains the words of life, and this really reveals to us the true Jesus, who is Lord of all, who came down and lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live and died the death on the cross that we deserve to die and really rose from the dead on the third day showing his power over sin and Satan and death forever and then ascended to his Father and sent the Holy Spirit to live in his people, in us, in this age and that he really will return. That's Luke's gospel. And it's only good news if it's true. So certainty about what we believe is viewed as dangerous in our culture. So the question for us, and it was, it was a question for Theophilus too, just handled a little differently. In that, in that time, the way, as Luke called it in Acts, um, Christianity was a brand new religion. Would it be able to survive in a society that thought it should be done away with? So it's not quite the same situation. We have about 2,000 years of history now and church history 
and theological thinking and working things out. How does this work? How do we live as the church? So we're not a, a brand new movement trying to establish ourselves. But can we really have certainty in a pluralistic, my truth, your truth kind of society? Luke's answer is a resounding yes. He says that's why he wrote this gospel. And so we want to see Luke first as a historian. When we think about his purpose and certainty for us, we want to see Luke as historian. This prologue, as we mentioned, is very formal. Um, It's even different from what the rest of the book sounds like, and it's because it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be a formal introduction to a real history. It reads like the beginning of other histories of that time. He's trying to establish, I'm not telling a story, right? How How do just stories start? Once upon a time, right? Or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? It's meant for us to wonder, like, how does it intersect with the world we live in, right? They say it's a long time ago, but maybe it's really from the future, and I don't have an answer for you on that, okay? But that's how those stories start, right? Once upon a time, and a lot of the Disney stories end up in some generic kingdom. It's like, where are they? Somewhere in Europe, because everyone's white. But beyond that, we don't really know. Like, what, what country is it? Are we in France this time? Because they all have British accents. Um, but it seems like it's supposed to be set in France. Uh, so wh- where are we? And it kind of doesn't matter, because we're just telling a story. It's just something to take us away from reality for a little bit, and then we come back, right? But Luke explicitly says right here in the introduction, I'm not doing that. This isn't a fairy story to help us sleep at night. This isn't something so we won't be afraid of the dark. It's the beginning of a history, of a real history. And so Luke did, as a good historian would do, careful research. In verse 3, when he's saying that it seemed good to him to write, said, having followed all things closely for some time past. So Luke says, I've done my research. I'm not making this up. I didn't just talk to one person who may or may not have been crazy and wrote down what they said. He says, this is for real. I've done careful research. He even researched gospels or other documents that were already written. He mentions in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he says, there are other ones have been written already, but he thought he had a unique contribution to make because of his careful research, and not just careful research of what was written, but also based on talking with eyewitnesses. This is based on eyewitness accounts. Verse 2, he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So, many people have worked on writing a narrative, says, and then we also have access to eyewitnesses, to the servants of the word, those people who ministered to us, and they've delivered them to us. And that's one of the reasons that we believe in an early date for Luke. He, he traveled with Paul, and he was talking with eyewitnesses. He had access to eyewitnesses. The best histories are based on eyewitness accounts. I mean, I think of a couple of books that I've read in just the last in the last several years, one of them is Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. Are you familiar with that story, the story of Louis Zamperini? Uh, if you're not, read it. It's great. It's a really, really great book. Um, and she wrote that. It came out in like 2009 or 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. I don't remember. I read it shortly after that. Um, and she's writing about events mostly that happened in World War II. 
And so she had great timing. If she was 10 years younger or 10 years behind in her literary career, she wouldn't have written Unbroken. Because two of the main subjects from that story have passed away in the last few years. One of them being Louis Zamperini himself. And so she was able, in his older years, to conduct interviews with him and listen to his stories and then also listen to the stories of his best friend who was with him and a lot of it happened with just the two of them there. This great history is enhanced. It's much better because she's able to talk to the people who lived it. And sometimes we get information that comes out later. How many of you are familiar with the story of the man who never was? This is also a World War II story. Okay, I saw one hand. It's when the Allies... There you go, Dennis. Thank you. All right, good, good. You borrowed that book from me. Thank you. I do have it back. <laughs> There's a book that came out several years ago called Operation Mincemeat, and it's about that story. There's a movie in the 50s that came out called The Man Who Never Was, and the, the basics of the story were right, that the Allies made up a person... And they somehow managed to get an actual dead body of a real person. But they made up his identity and gave him papers and gave him theater tickets and gave him all sorts of stuff. Gave him a girlfriend who really did live but was never his girlfriend because he never was. Um, it gets a little complicated sometimes. And so that story was told in film in the 50s, but that was in the time of... You know, the beginning of the Cold War and communism, and they weren't going to give away all their secrets in that movie, though they were willing to give away the main secret. And one of the guys who worked on it was very secretive himself. I mean, it was done by, it's like MI5 or MI6 or somebody. Uh, is it five, seven? Is that, no? All right. So one of the guys, he was really good at being a spy and not telling people things. So he didn't even tell his own family. But when he died several years ago, he left a chest with his journals from that time. And so this book, Operation Mincemeat, was able to use eyewitness accounts that hadn't been available for 70 years, but that filled out a lot of the details of that story and made it even more incredible and even more amazing. So the best histories are based on eyewitness accounts. You'd ask someone who was there, and Luke was able to do that. So it's not only that he's able to write a good history, he's also able to be fact-checked. So for the people who are like, oh, it's just legends that grew up over generations, and then the Gospels were written down. The Gospels and the, the Epistles claim the exact opposite of that. Right? Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's saying, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. And he goes on with the facts of the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to many. And he appeared to over 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. Right? So Paul, in a section where he's saying the resurrection's true, it has to be, or we don't have anything, he says, you can go check it out. Some have died, but most of them are still alive. And Luke is telling us something similar here. We got this story from eyewitnesses. The people who in Acts 4, when they were being persecuted and told to shut up, said, we can't but speak of what we have seen and heard. We think of how John starts his letter, 1 John. It's that which we have seen, that which we have handled. The word of life. So Luke had followed all things closely. He had done careful research, probably even using the Gospel of Mark which was most likely written in the 50s. So that would have been there. He would have been able to see it and use that as a source. But then he also had eyewitness accounts who were still living when he wrote that people could have checked on. And he does have a lot of unique information. Scholars tell us that about 30%, one scholar said as much as 42% of Luke's teaching is unique. 
So there's a way in which you go, all the Gospels are the same, right? They're about Jesus. And they all lead to his death and resurrection. And they do. But Luke makes several unique contributions to the story. Things we wouldn't know about Jesus. Whether it's facts about him, stories about him, or things that he taught. Uh, like most of what we'll be looking at for the rest of this month, Luke has way more about the, the birth of Christ and his infancy than any other ones. We wouldn't know that when he was taken to be dedicated at the temple, there were Simeon and Anna who had been waiting for years. And now Simeon could say, I can, I can die in peace because I've seen your salvation. So there, there are things just in these what we'll be looking at this month that are new. Um, Story of the Good Samaritan is only in Luke. We wouldn't have that story without Luke. The story of the prodigal son, we wouldn't have that without Luke. The story of Zacchaeus, kids love that one. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have that story without the Gospel of Luke. And then uh, one of the other things that, that people have thrown at the Gospels is kind of like, well, they, they don't all agree on the details sometimes. And one of the answers that we would make to that is that's the nature of eyewitness accounts and the nature of telling story from a perspective. And so there are times where there's a, there's a story and maybe no one's named, but in another one somebody's named. Like there's only one gospel where Malchus is named as the high priest servant who gets his ear cut off by Peter. I think that one's in John. Luke is the only one that has Jesus healing him and putting his ear back on. Luke cares about people. Luke cares about seeing them made whole. And we wouldn't know that Malchus got his ear back if we didn't have the gospel of Luke. We also wouldn't know the details of Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that we find in Luke 24 after his resurrection, when he's teaching them from the Old Testament about all the things there concerning himself. That's only in Luke. It gets a quick mention um, in one of the other Gospels where it says that, that he talked with two of them on the road and they went back and told everyone, but they, they didn't believe them. But Luke 24, it's much longer. It tells us what happened. It tells us what he said. And it gives us really important information for how we understand the Old Testament. How we look for Jesus in his word. Luke is also the only New Testament author who tells us that Jesus ascended in story form. It's mentioned, but you think of the other Gospels. Matthew just ends with the Great Commission. Um, Mark ends with the Great Commission, the apostles doing miracles. Um, John ends with uh, the restoration of Peter in John 21, and then John just kind of like wrapping up the book, but doesn't have the ascension. But Luke, in both Luke and Acts, gives us the story of the ascension, ultimately leading to the sending of the Spirit. So we learn that from Luke, Luke 24 and Acts 1. What's the point? This is real history that really matters for us. So Luke is a historian. He's done careful research. He has spoken with eyewitnesses. He's had the truth handed down to him from those who saw Jesus himself. Those who didn't understand. That's another reason for the authenticity of the Gospels. If you were making up a religion and you were trying to say, the apostles, we're connected to them. You wouldn't write the Gospels. They look pretty dumb most of the time, right? They're dense, they're slow, they're foolish, they're selfish. I mean, it sounds familiar, but it's not the kind of people we would choose to say, we want to be like them, right? And so Luke is telling us real history. He's telling us what really happened so that we would have certainty. That was his purpose. He's writing a real history that really matters for us. And he's writing as a historian, but he's also writing as a theologian. In verse 3, when he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He says, I'm writing an orderly account. 
Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he wrote everything in chronological order. It means that he wrote everything on purpose, factually true, but everything on purpose to tell the story of who Jesus is so that we would be able to understand. His orderly account was so that we would have certainty about who Jesus is and what he would do. So it doesn't mean that everything is in chronological order, but it means that he put things together logically. He put things together as a theologian, as someone who is trying to teach us, who is studying God and then wanting to teach us about God. Luke wants us to know for sure that we can believe what we have heard about Jesus. So he tells us who he is, tells us what he came to do, and he tells us how we are to respond. So let's go now quickly to the content. What is in this letter? What are we going to be looking at over the rest of this school year and the next? And the content is Jesus. Here in the text, it's what uh, the, the things that have been accomplished among us, that's what he's talking about, the things you have been taught. So it's what Jesus accomplished through his life, through his death, and his resurrection. So we're not just supposed to have certainty about the Bible, that, we could, that the Gospels are reliable, but he wants us to have certainty about the Gospel, that the facts of the Gospel are true and meaningful for us. A significant theme in the first nine chapters is that through Jesus, God fulfills his plan to save sinners, to save the lost, to save the weak, to save the broken, to save the poor from every nation. And so let's look quickly at just the main sections of Luke. The first one is infancy, the birth and infancy. That's what we'll get to starting next week with the birth of John the Baptist. And then with the announcement to Mary, and then the birth of Jesus, and the angels, the shepherds, his dedication at the temple, all that. And Luke's point is that Jesus was born in accordance with prophecy. Matthew's the one who's most known for that, for writing to a Jewish audience and pointing us back. This was to fulfill what had been said by the prophet. But Luke also is pointing us back regularly. There were these promises. Someone would come. Someone would come, and he's here. He is here. Luke, as we mentioned, has the most information by far about Jesus' infancy and youth. Mark and John don't mention it at all. Matthew gives us the detail of Herod trying to kill the children. We wouldn't know about the wise men without Matthew. But Luke gives us pretty much everything else that we know about Jesus' birth and his infancy. And we see that in chapter 1 from verse 1, right in the beginning. Or really 1 verse 5, I guess, after this prologue. Um, to 2.52. That's the end of the infancy and youth narratives. And then in chapter 3, from verse, chapter 3, verse 1 to 9, and verse 50, is Jesus' ministry, mainly in Galilee, up in the north. And so, and this is where he didn't put everything in chronological order or tell us all the information. Uh, Because Jesus made more than one trip to Jerusalem in his ministry, but we don't see that in Luke. His ministry is in Galilee, up in the northern part of the country. And we see in his ministry that Jesus did what the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah. That his ministry was also in accordance with prophecy. It's not just that, oh, at his birth, okay, yeah, there it is. It's not just that his birth was prophesied, it's that what he would do, his ministry fulfilled prophecy about the Messiah. That's in chapter 3 through chapter 9 and verse 50. And what will we see him do? We'll see him healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, telling storms to be quiet, and preaching the good news to the poor, to the outcast, and to the sinner. So it's infancy, first two chapters, ministry, chapter 3 through 950, and Lord willing, that's what we'll be getting through up up to June of this year. And then when we come back next school year, we'll pick up with his journey to Jerusalem. His journey to Jerusalem, that's from 951, that's where it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that will take us all the way up through 1927, 951 to 1927. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
He's already predicted his death a couple times, and the disciples don't get it. And it's like, all right, I'm going. I'm going to accomplish what I came here to do. We'll see him in that section face growing opposition. But we'll see him determined to accomplish his mission and to seek and to save the lost. That will be a big emphasis in that section of his journey to Jerusalem. And then the last major section, his passion. This is from chapter 19, verse 28, through chapter 24 and verse 53, which is the end of the book with his ascension and then the disciples rejoicing and praising God in the temple as they waited for the Spirit to come. It's his passion. His passion, you know, the the main way we use that word today is something we're excited about. Um, But Jesus' passion speaks of his suffering, of his death for us, followed by his resurrection. So Jesus died and rose again in accordance with prophecy to bring forgiveness and salvation. So we'll see him do some ministry in Jerusalem. The beginning of that section is the, what's come down to us as the triumphal entry when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. That's what happens in chapter 19 and verse 28. But we see through his teaching and ministry in Jerusalem and then ultimately through his life, through his death and resurrection, we see that this salvation is for the whole world. It's for everyone who Believes, which also highlights for us the necessity of faith. At the end, when he's telling the disciples, it was necessary, you know, you didn't get it, but it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, to die, to rise again, and now it's necessary that repentance and forgiveness for sins be preached in his name through all nations. We'll see throughout this gospel the importance of how we respond. To Jesus. This is not just a nice story. It's not just one for us to go, oh, that's interesting. It's not like Operation Mincemeat or Unbroken, where you'll be fine if you've never read those books. You'll be fine if you don't know these stories. This Jesus story is different than that. How we respond to Jesus matters. We'll see how the religious leaders respond to him, and then by contrast, how others respond to him. That we're called to respond with repentance, with faith, and then we're told how to live as the new people of God in the power of the Spirit. And so as we look at Jesus in this gospel, let's be ready, let's be eager to respond like that, to respond with repentance. Where do we need to change? Where do we need to grow? To respond with faith. That we're not just seeing him being crushed by where we need to change and crushed by the law. But that we see him and we see his salvation is is for us. And that he's made us his people. And that he's given us things to do while we wait for him. To live for his glory. So again, the, the big idea is this. Luke wrote this gospel so that we would have certainty about what Jesus accomplished through his life, through his death, and his resurrection. We don't need to follow the culture. We don't need to proclaim doubt as a virtue. We don't need to proclaim uncertainty as a virtue. Really, there's no sense in taking some of Jesus' teachings, usually the ones that we already agree with or think that we can do, and then throwing out the rest. If we don't have a Savior who lived a perfect life, died a bloody death on the cross in our place, taking our sins on him. And then didn't stay dead, but rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of his Father and sent the Spirit to be in us until he comes again. If we don't have that Jesus, we don't have salvation at all. We don't need to bother trying to follow him or being like him at all. He's not just a good teacher. He is the Lord of all who has come down to save us. So Luke doesn't want us to wonder. He wants us to know. He wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know why Jesus came. And he wants us to know what he accomplished for us and what that means for us. Now, 
every one of us has struggled with doubt at some point. So when I'm talking about we don't want to make doubt a virtue, we don't want to make uncertainty a virtue, it's that we don't want to say, yeah, that's, a, that's the healthier place to be than being certain. Struggling with doubt is not the same as elevating doubt to a virtue. So don't hear condemnation in Luke saying, I want you to be certain. It doesn't mean that we have to pretend that everything's great or that we always feel great about everything and that we never wonder. We all have days when especially facing the darkness of our own hearts or the darkness of other people's hearts or being aware of the darkness in the world around us that we struggle with doubt. But Luke would have us, by God's grace, not give in to our doubts. Rather, when we doubt, he would want us to run to places like this, to his gospel, where we see Jesus and we hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, just believe. So bring your doubts and let's see Jesus together in this series. Not for who we want him to be, but for who he is in truth. Luke doesn't want us to doubt. He doesn't want us to be afraid. He wants us to know what Jesus accomplished, and he wants us to respond with faith. Then he wants us to become witnesses, just like those first doubters turned believers. May God do that for us by his grace as we see Jesus in the gospel according to Luke. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Luke. And we ask you to help us to sit under this gospel, under your word, with humility, with faith, with repentance, with obedience, and with certainty. Not about ourselves, but about what you have accomplished for us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.